Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. After months of preparations and supply deliveries from the U.S. and other allies, the Ukrainian military has begun to probe Russian defenses in eastern Ukraine. As the long-awaited counteroffensive begins, we check in with people inside and outside Ukraine on the state of the war. What's happened in recent months? What do we still not know about the early days of this bloody war? And will the next few months point towards some kind of resolution for the people of Ukraine? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This morning, as the Ukrainian counteroffensive in eastern Ukraine gets underway, we'll be discussing the latest developments in the war. It's been 16 months since Russian forces blasted into the country, only to be denied a quick victory. Ukraine and its allies are now locked in a massive, grinding war with Russia that's killed tens of thousands of people and displaced many millions. We begin this morning with one of the most important chroniclers of those early months of the war, Mstislav Chernov whose work documenting the destruction of the city of Mariupol won him a piece of the Pulitzer Prize. Chernoff has a new documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol, which debuted at Sundance. It's a chilling and intimate look at the destruction of a Ukrainian city. I mean, pieces of it feel like the movie Children of Men. We wander deserted streets, see bedlam at a hospital, watch the anguish of people whose homes have been destroyed, and listen to the filmmakers breathe as they run for their lives in Russian-occupied territory. This war is brutal. So many people are dying. And this was just 20 days in one city. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Slov, and for this work. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So you're in Kherson now in Ukraine. What's As you talk to people, how are they feeling about this latest phase of the war? It has been a long-awaited phase uh, for uh, the whole Ukrainian nation. I feel that as hard as it is going now, we see that the um, Ukrainian army uh, gains and liberates territories, um, but it's not a quick process. But overall, um, I keep speaking to people, and overall society is very supportive and 
everyone was waiting for this moment. Right, right. So you've made this stuck. Although you know, it's it's all it's all with a you know mixed with the tragedies of the past and and tragedies that are happening right now in Kurson as well. Yeah, yeah. So you've made this documentary on one of the most brutal moments in this war, really anywhere um, on Earth in the last few decades, 20 days in Mariupol. What do you want people to take away from this film? You know, <clears throat> I thought about that a lot when I was when I was, just started editing uh, mm -hmm. with Michelle Meissner from the Frontline. Uh, this one is a collaboration of uh, PBS Frontline and uh, Associated Press. And uh, in the beginning, I just wanted it, wanted people to see uh, what was what they saw beyond those thirty seconds or one minute videos that they've seen on the news, and that they were probably just lost in in hundreds uh, of other testimonies of, of uh, brutalities and, and war crimes. And I wanted to show the scale of mm -hmm. this, of a destruction, of the destruction mm -hmm. of the city, the scale of loss and uh, tragedy. But at the same time, as I was, uh, as we were editing the film, I, I, I felt that it's also kind of full of hope and resilience. At mm -hmm. the same time, so a part of like being on the as being Ukrainian, I have a like a mission to just observe and record my country's history and my uh, my people's history and the war crimes, the potential war crimes that were committed against against them by Russia. Um, but at the same time, just showing the resilience and, and the resistance and hope during the war and you know afterwards is, is incredibly important so yeah it's kind of yeah. many layers i mean one of the things that's so i i mean quite honestly quite difficult to watch in your film but that's also so powerful is you are kind of toggling between the scale of an entire city destroyed but we spend a lot of time in this film almost like from just your point of view like the camera in your hands on the ground level, talking to individual people, seeing their faces, understanding how scared they are. As you, having gotten out of the city, um, which people, when they watch the documentary, they can see how difficult that was, having gotten out of the city, when you had to re-watch that footage of people you know are still there, or you hope are still there, um, like, what was it like for you? Uh, first of all, um... I think when I was rewatching, when we were editing the film, we were really worried about uh, that it might be a disturbing for a viewer, a heavy watch, like a difficult one. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when the film won the Sundance Festival, the Audience Awards, there was it was a message for us as a filmmakers uh, that actually people want to know more. They want to go deeper. Want to yeah. So. That that helped me to that kind of reinforced reinforced my idea to to keep to keep telling the stories. But we found everyone, almost everyone, who have uh, survived uh, the siege, who you see in the film. And we followed up with the uh, is at least a dozen investigations on what mm -hmm. what happened to the city, to uh, people who you see in a film. So it was incredibly difficult to watch, 
but again, it was necessary because we needed to know what happens next. Because the war is not, you know, 20 days is just a number. There was day 21, 22. Mariupol was uh, under the siege for 86 days. And mm-hmm. uh, worse things happened uh, after we uh, escaped. Uh, but really, what happened to Mariupol happened to many other cities in Ukraine, mm-hmm. to Bakhmut, which Russians claimed to take, but they just destroyed it. And Papasna, Volnovaka, Abdiivka, Vuhlidar, I can go on and on with this list. It's just a... Mariupol is a symbol to what is happening to Ukrainian cities right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, having seen this up close as uh, this type of war reporter that that you are, what do you make of just what's going to happen in this war? I mean, just given that you've seen the Russian war machine, you've seen you know, the resilience of the Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian people, but these are, this, do you see this being able to move out of being a, just a brutal stalemate? You see, here, here, comes, here comes the problem. Every single Ukrainian wants peace, and that is certain because the country has been attacked. All Ukrainians have lost someone. All Ukrainians have stories of tragedy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, all Ukrainians I speak to when I keep asking about, you know, what do you think is next? What is, uh, What are your hopes? Every single one of them will respond that all Ukrainian territories have to be liberated. And the footage that you see in in Mariupol, those uh, shots we've seen uh, emerging from Bucha right afterwards mm-hmm. uh, and Izum and mass graves in Izum and torture, torture jails in in in, uh, in Kherson when it was liberated. So all of those things just say uh, what will happen to a Ukrainian land and Ukrainian people if these territories will not be liberated. The Ukrainians as a nation on those in those regions which were which are occupied by Russia is going to be destroyed. And that's what we see, but that's what we actually see now. Hundreds of arrests, tortures, uh, Ukrainian children just uh, taken away and re-educated, as they call it. But in fact, it's just uh, just hearing all Ukrainians, all Ukrainian identity out of these children. Mm. So that is why Ukrainians will keep fighting, not because they want blood, you know. <laughs> It's because they, it's a matter of survival for the nation. Yeah. And I'm afraid it's like a, if you, they all understand if Ukrainians will fail at this fight, then it, it means a failure of democracy. It's a, it means a failure of the democratic world. So in some way, the Ukrainians feel that they fight for the whole world here. Mm-hmm. We're discussing the latest developments and the progress of the war in Ukraine. Joined first this morning by Mr. Slov Chernov, a video journalist with the Associated Press, director of the new documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. He's joining us from Kherson in Ukraine. I want to say 20 Days in Mariupol, very powerful documentary. It's going to open Friday, July 21st at the Roxy Theater in San Francisco with a special screening at the Smith uh, Rafael Film Center in San Rafael on Sunday, July 23rd. Both theaters are going to have a Q&A uh, with Mr. Slov. So if you want to see this film, uh, a, a 
close in the theater, that's where you're going to be able to see it. Um, want to hear from you. What questions do you have about the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the humanitarian situation in Ukraine, the war in general? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, and you can find us on all the social platforms. We're KQED Forum. Mrs. Love, um, what's the humanitarian situation like on the ground in Ukraine, especially given how many people have been you know, internally displaced or, or turned into refugees outside the country? Uh, well, I think, I think the main, the, the most severe situation currently now is in uh, Kherson, actually, where, where I am. And that is why I'm here, because I'm, uh, I, my work is dedicated to humanitarian aspect of, of this war and uh, how civilians uh, mm-hmm. suffer from it and the floods have um, um, destroyed thousands of houses and displayed mm-hmm. displaced thousands of people uh, and we see the floods uh, from the dam Ukrainian, the yes dam break. the flood yeah. yes so the Russians have exploded the dam and which is very very likely because they've benefited from from it by uh, stopping Ukrainian forces at this part of the front from crossing the river ukraine forces were ready to cross and now they can't because it's just too wide and there are evacuations going on of, of civilians so that is for military operation um it makes it almost impossible and uh, ukrainian rescue services just keep rescuing people and animals from the roofs of their houses under shelling which is coming uh from uh, other side of a river and just just yesterday, we've seen a, a horrible situation when rescue services actually went to the occupied territory to rescue people, mm-hmm. and they were shot at, and three people were killed. Uh, so it's not Mrs. only the flood; it's also a shelling. A Mrs. Love, um, stay with us. We have to go to a quick break. We're talking with Mr. Love Chernoff. Stay with us. Uh, it's, I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the war in Ukraine. Um, right before the break, we were talking with Mstislav Cherenov, video journalist with the Associated Press, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, director of the new documentary, 20 Days in Mariupol. He's joining us from Kherson in Ukraine. Before we let you go, because we know you got to uh, get, get going, the Washington Post yesterday wrote this about your city. 
In November, the city was the first regional capital liberated by Kyiv's forces, becoming a symbol of resistance. But once Ukraine refused to, send or Kherson, to surrender Kherson, Putin seemed determined to destroy it. Is that what you're seeing happen right now in the city? Oh, actually, I have been here uh, exactly after liberation of Kherson. So I've witnessed how Ukrainians have feared and how happy they were uh, when Ukraine army went in. And for about a week, uh, it was more or less quiet, but then uh, heavy shelling started. So I was filming uh, dozens of injured people uh, by indiscriminate uh, uh, rocket attacks. Uh, and uh, that seems to be uh, to become a, a sad, sad uh, rule that city is being shelled mm-hmm. from time to time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah unfortunately, uh, that is that is the case. And Kherson is a frontline city, so it's on the bank of a river, which is a frontline, or at least it was before the before the flood. Uh, and unless the territories on the other bank are liberated, it will continue to be shelled and civilians will uh, continue to suffer. Yeah. Mr. Slav Chernoff, video journalist with the Associated Press, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. I want to add in a couple of other guests here. Stephen Pfeiffer is an affiliate with the Center for International Security and Cooperation uh, at Stanford University, former ambassador to Ukraine and a senior director at the National Security Council in the Clinton administration. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Happy to be here. Melinda Herring is a non-resident senior fellow and former deputy director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council. Welcome, Melinda. Thanks, Alexis. Glad to be with you and Steve. Steve, um, for those of us who have not been keeping up on the state of the war over the last uh, months, over the winter and into the spring, I mean, where did things stand before this counteroffensive that people are hearing about? Yeah, the focus was really on uh, a Russian offensive that lasted about the first four months of this year to try to take the uh, town of Bakhmut. Um, and it looks like the Russians succeeded. That, uh, of course, Bakhmut really doesn't have much strategic importance. The Russians had been trying to take Bakhmut for 10 months, uh, and uh, they had enormous casualties in taking it. Uh, But the assessment of the uh, U.S. intelligence community now is that the Russian military is really a spent force. It will not be capable of conducting a major offensive for the rest of the year. And thus, all eyes are now on the Ukrainians who appear to be launching uh, probing operations in preparation for a major counteroffensive. At the same time, some military analysts in, in the West feel like the Ukrainians may have a lot of difficulty advancing as well, right? Well, what the Russians have done is they have built uh, multiple defensive lines. And I think the expectation was that in assaulting these lines, and what you're seeing now, I believe, are the Ukrainians probing to try to determine weak spots. But I think the expectation is that the Ukrainians would take some losses in penetrating those lines. The question, of course, is if they can penetrate those lines and launch a breakthrough, uh, then they have the uh, opportunity to be very disruptive uh, to the Russian military position in Ukraine. Melinda, um, over the winter, a lot of the discussion was also about the supply of weapons to Ukraine. And did the Ukrainians get everything they said they needed from their European and, and Western allies? 
In short, Alexis, no, they did not. The Ukrainians have been pushing and pushing for attackums. These are long-range missiles. They did not get those from the United States. They were also pushing and pushing for F-16s. They didn't get the jets that they needed in time for the counteroffensive. They got a lot of kit that they wanted. They have uh, a number of Leopard tanks, and the Ukrainians have great chutzpah, and they're already asking uh, for more. So they do have a, a lot of kit, but a lot of the military experts like uh, General Ben Hodges says without attackums, uh, the Ukrainians can't make as much progress as they would have. Attackums are really important uh, to being able to strike behind enemy lines. Yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you expect to see over these next few months in terms of like, do do you expect to see large territorial gains? Do you expect to see small but significant strategic territorial gains? Like where, how should people calibrate their expectations for this offensive? So right. it's not going to be a cakewalk. That's the caution that I would give you. Last year, we saw Ukraine make a number of progress in the north, in Kharkiv Oblast, and then down in the south in Kherson. And it was stunning. It was uh, unexpected. And the Ukrainians got really likely. But there's not a lot of low-hanging fruit left. So George Barros at, the, uh, at ISW says that 2023 will be the year of Ukrainian counteroffensives. And it's a plural counteroffensive. So he says, expect to see multiple... Uh, multiple counteroffensives. It's going to be smaller. Uh, it's going to be hard, you know, for the reasons you mentioned. The Russians have put a series of trenches, mines, razor wire, berms, and dragon teeth that stopped uh, tanks uh, along this this border. But it is 600 miles long. It's enormous. And the Russians, let, let's not pretend that they're ten thousand or that they're, they're ten feet tall. We already did that. So the the Russians ha are weak. Uh, and they're they're they don't have great morale. Uh, they're tired. It's a massive territory. And then we also see from open sources that the construction of these defense fortifications is really uneven. We see pictures of these dragon teeth that are not put in well. There's questions about how well these trenches uh, were, were done. They're done by contractors. There's there's allegations that that the contractors were mistreated. So Russia doesn't have a great history uh, with defense fortifications. So I wouldn't hold my breath. Hmm. Stephen, do you do you agree with that uh, assessment broadly? Yeah, I I think that the um, the Ukrainians will liberate significant amounts of territory. Uh, it's not going to be easy at first, but once they can penetrate these lines, I think they will have opportunities to conduct maneuver warfare. And as Melinda said, you have on the Russian side uh, uh, an army where morale is low. Uh, they have demonstrated both poor leadership and poor tactics over the past fifteen months. The question is whether the Ukrainian military in this counteroffensive or this series of counteroffensives, can they deal a big enough blow, a disruptive enough blow to the Russian military where Moscow might rethink uh, the uh, wisdom of its course? Uh, and we'll have to see. I, I, I don't exclude that. But, uh, but again, it's going to be a hard fight to really cause a Russian military collapse or to push the Russians back to, say, where they were on February 23 of last year before they launched this new massive invasion. Could you talk us through some possible places of sort of strategic importance in this counteroffensive? Sure. Uh, I mean, right now it looks like the Ukrainians are conducting uh, probing operations in three areas. One is in the east around Bakhmut, uh, the town uh, 
that the Russians fought so hard for in the first four months of the year. The other two appear to be in the south. And if one of those should succeed, I think what the Ukrainians would like to do is drive to the north coast of the Sea of Azov. That would allow them to divide Russian forces in southern Ukraine. It would allow the Ukrainian military to sever the rail and road links that go across the northern part of, or, I'm sorry, across the southern part of Ukraine. And that would then leave uh, the Russians very dependent on the bridge across the Kerch Strait for rail and road transportation to supply their forces in Crimea. That bridge is vulnerable. We saw the Ukrainians already attack it once in October. So I think if the Ukrainians you know, can succeed, you know, their first goal would be to reach that northern coast of the Sea of Azov, divide the Russians in two, and then that really, I think, begins to complicate the military position for Russia. You know, Melinda, this war has been marked, you know, from the very beginning by at least some level of surprise, right? Um, many analysts thought the Russian military would just run over the Ukrainian military and the, the thing would be over uh, very quickly. But there have been various other turning points and surprising moments. What's something you think we might not be thinking about, something that... Um, is outside, you know, the main scope of focus for people that we should really keep our eye on to try and prepare ourselves? Oh, Alexis, this is the good question. Uh, there's a lot of, of unknown variables uh, in the fight that remains. Uh, Steve is right. We don't know how this is going to play out. All eyes are on the land bridge. So it, it's the area along uh, the sea that connects Russia to Crimea. Uh, so that's one piece that I think everyone is very, very fixated on. Crimea has enough supplies uh, right now. It's well supplied. But if the Ukrainians were able to disrupt that land bridge, uh, that they could really mess with the Russians this winter. So I, I think that's one of the, the, the big goals. You know, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is another big unknown. It's been in the Russians' hands for a while. And I've lost track of how many times... Uh, they've lost enough um, water to cool down the plant and everyone you know, freaks out that we're going to see nuclear winter. Um, if the Ukrainians were able to retake Zaporizhia, that would be a big symbolic win. And I know that I would sleep much better at night and I'm sure your listeners would too. Um, I think another piece is the 30,000 uh, Ukrainian troops that have been trained by the U.S. and NATO. So how well do they do with combined arms uh, in, in the next couple of months is, is one of the big questions. So that's how well do the guys on the ground coordinate with the guys in the sky? Can they do these complicated maneuvers? You know, NATO and the United States have put a lot of money into training. Uh, and it's really important for the Ukrainians to show that they're worthy of this investment and that it was the right thing to do by sending um, these, these weapon systems and also investing in the training. Uh, th there's some other things that, that could surprise us. You know, one piece I have my eye on is Russia itself. Uh, I am watching Russian elite opinion. So a top Russian MP uh, this month who's close to the FSB went on air, and this is kind of surprising. He said, uh, all of Russia's war aims have failed, and some of them are senseless. And everyone sort of sh was shocked by that. Putin has also said things that we didn't expect him to say. He admitted this week that there were significant losses in Ukraine, and he also admitted that there's artillery problems. We know that that 
uh, it's it's not peaches at home in Moscow, and that people are increasingly frustrated uh, with the war and, and with the number of soldiers coming back. And we've seen waves of Russians try to leave if they have the monetary resources to do mm -hmm. so. Alexis, can I add just briefly? Yeah, about, yeah, please do. Yeah, be prepared to be surprised. Uh, the Ukrainians have shown over the last 15, 16 months that they are masters at misdirection. So if you go back to August to last summer, the Ukrainians were talking very openly about their plans for an offensive to liberate the western part of Kherson. And the Russians actually moved troops down to Kherson to defend that area. And what happened in September? The Ukrainians stuck, struck not in Kherson, but in Kharkiv. And they drove the Russians completely out of the Kharkiv province in the north, and then two months later went back and liberated the western part of Kherson. Uh, so I think the Ukrainians have the capacity to surprise. They've shown that in the past, and I expect that they will surprise us in the future. You know, why did, I mean, your former ambassador to Ukraine, why did the Ukrainians and everybody else in the kind of Western alliance that's backing them, why did everyone talk about this counteroffensive for so long? Um, I, I mean, I think part of it was political. Uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, I mean, first of all, they want to liberate their land. You know, they want to liberate all of that land. Uh, and so part of that is sort of telling the Ukrainian population, there will be a counteroffensive. We will do that. And part of it, I believe, was also aimed at the West, uh, basically telling the West, uh, you're going to see the Ukrainian military making progress in pushing the Russians back. Because I believe that the Ukrainians calculate, probably correctly, that there will be stronger support in the West if the West sees Ukraine as able, to, in fact, to drive the Russians back, as opposed to a situation in which the Russians are winning or which the Russian or, or which the war is at a stagnant situation. Uh, so part of this is aimed at populations both in uh, Ukraine but also in the West. Hmm. We're discussing the latest developments in the war in Ukraine with Stephen Pfeiffer, affiliate with the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford and a former ambassador to Ukraine, and Melinda Herring, non-resident senior fellow and former deputy director of the Eurasia Center with the Atlantic Council. If you're from Ukraine, what are you hearing from your friends, family, contacts there or abroad? And give us a call. The number is 866 733 6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, and you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or KQED Forum. You know, Melinda, earlier you were saying about the Russian, both troop um, levels as well as their supply lines, you know, continuing to be shaky. But clearly they've figured out some things about how to dig in and prevent this Ukrainian advance. Are there indications that the Russian army is in fact like uh, uh, on some like on some sort of verge of collapse or is that even a possibility or have there been sufficient resupplies? The supply chains have been uh, reestablished and there are enough fresh troops to to make this, you know, a very, very difficult battle. Or series of battles, really. Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. So CSIS has a great new report out by Seth Jones, and it's very detailed, and I love it, and I'd highly recommend it. And what Seth says is that Russia doesn't have enough high-quality forces to defend all parts of this enormous line. 
So, you know, even you'd have to make a lot of assumptions there, even if they were high quality forces, which they're not, they don't have enough guys to defend the line. So that's that's a big problem. And Steve's right. The Ukrainians are going to exploit it like hell. And they're looking for, for those weak spots right now. So Seth Jones at CSIS goes through the different scenarios. He looks at the, the four different oblasts where the Ukrainians could try to press ahead. And the Russians think that the Ukrainians want to retake the land bridge. And I, I think that's a good assumption for the reasons we've talked about. But they've put enormous amounts of defense uh, fortifications in there, three different lines, and some of them overlap. And it's going to be really hard to get through there. So one of the things that this new report says is that it could make sense for the Ukrainians to try something easier, say up in the north in Luhansk, like Steve said, where there's an element of surprise, it's not as heavily defended. And we also saw, you know, last month in Belgorod when uh, when there were forces, uh, they claimed to be Russian forces uh, from Ukraine going into Russia proper and scaring the pants out of the Russians. And what that does is it causes uh, the Russian soldiers to have to move. So I expect to see more kinds of tactics like that that cause uh, Russia to have to, to make the lines even thinner. That's something I would keep my eye on. Yeah. One, of, the, one other piece, Alexis, though, Steve had an excellent list on why why the Ukrainians have made such a big deal out of the counteroffensive. I think Steve is right, but there's more to it. Uh, Zelensky is telling the world we do not accept the status quo, and he's also pushing to take back as much land as possible so he can get the best deal at the negotiating table. He's eventually going to have to go to the negotiating table, and that's that's what this is. This is a big attempt to try to take back as much land as possible, put Ukraine in the most advantageous uh, position so that it get, so that it gets a real security guarantee from the West. Hmm. Melinda mentioned this uh, report from CSIS, which is the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And that report's called Ukraine's Offensive Operation Shifting the Offense-Defense Balance. She's totally right. If you want to see maps of Russian fortifications, you know, analysis of the units, where they are based on open source intelligence and interviews with people who are involved, that's what it is. It's Ukraine's Offensive Operations Shifting the Offense-Defense Balance, again, from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We're discussing the latest developments in the war in Ukraine with Melinda Herring, non-resident senior fellow and the former deputy director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council, and Stephen Pfeiffer, affiliate with the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford and a former ambassador to Ukraine. We'd love to hear from you, your questions on this Ukrainian counteroffensive, what you've been wondering about as the war has gone on. The number is 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're discussing the latest developments in the war in Ukraine with Stephen Piper, an affiliate with the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford, former ambassador to Ukraine, and Melinda Herring, non-resident senior fellow and former deputy director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council. want to add another voice uh, into our mix. Igor Markov is a member of the board of directors with Nova Ukraine. Welcome. Oh, okay. We will uh, come back to Igor in just a minute. We um we have some questions on the lines for uh, Stephen and Melinda. Let's go first to uh, Eid. Hi. Good morning. I spent 15 years at University of California Berkeley Nuclear Engineering Department. I'm aware of what nuclear bombs can do. Mm-hmm. Hiroshima one was only 15 kiloton, killed over 200,000 people within years, 50,000, 60,000 within minutes or seconds. I'm really concerned about the potential war tethering in a nuclear holocaust. This thing should have been set up from the beginning. I love Ukrainian people. They're beautiful people. Never mind the economical effects Ukraine have in the whole world. They're the biggest producer of grains, besides Russia. This thing should have been settled. I feel bad for the tens of thousands of Ukrainians that were killed, murdered mm-hmm. by the Russians. But you're dealing with some crazy, insane man, Putin. What would kill him any minute when he pushed in the corner to pull the nuclear bomb? Mm. You know, you're talking about he, Russia has the biggest atom bomb in the world, 800 kiloton. That is about, the, compared to Hiroshima, which was 15, that able to destroy a whole state and maybe multi-states. We need to settle this thing. We need to settle it as soon as possible. I go back to the new, you know, the ancient man who just used big stick. Well, Eve, let me, let me, um, we have to be civilized. Yeah, let me, let me ask him, because I, you know, this is a really interesting question, Eden, and one, I, there was so much talk about the possible use of nuclear weapons by the Russian side in this conflict. And Stephen, I, is it just here in the West that the media has stopped talking about this? Or is there is there a perception that there is actually less pressure in that direction? Yeah, I mean, you certainly cannot dismiss the Russian threat. But I think if you go back and you look, the Russian threats peaked really in September when the Russians supposedly annexed these four provinces of Ukraine. Putin was saying, these are Russian territory. We will defend them with all means at our disposal. But I believe that if you look in October, November, Moscow actually tried to back away from the nuclear threats. They lowered the rhetoric, first of all, because they saw that the nuclear threats were having absolutely no effect on the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians already see this war as existential. They know if they lose, their democracy is gone, their independent state is gone. And polls show that the threat of Russian nuclear weapons does not affect much the determination of the Ukrainian population to fight to free their country. Second, the Russians saw that it didn't have any impact on the Western countries and their continuing supply of weapons and support to Ukraine. And third, uh, the Russian nuclear threats begin to unnerve uh, some of their key partners, first of all, China uh, and the global South. And so in October, November, you saw Putin himself begin to sort of back away from these threats. So I, I do believe that the Russians want to keep that out there, but I think they tried in last fall, saw that these nuclear threats didn't succeed and in fact were counterproductive with audiences in places like China, India, and the global South that are important to them. Yeah. Let's um, bring in Igor Markov, 
Uh, we've got him back, member of the board of directors with uh, Nova Ukraine. Welcome. Good morning. You know, you were on the show uh, back in March of 2022, and you've been working on relief efforts since then. What are the most pressing issues for you all right now? Uh, so right now, we uh, sent our Kiev team to um, the Kherson region, and we are funding a number of partners for emergency relief, for evacuation, for food for people who are staying. Uh, they bought boats. Uh, they're um, you know, purchasing gasoline to move people to safer regions. And uh, we raised 100000 uh, for Kherson relief uh, just uh, since Tuesday. Uh, we are hoping to raise more, of course. Um, with our funds we are uh, preparing for work on territories that will be liberated during the counteroffensive because we've seen how this plays out um uh, last year after the um Kharkiv and Kherson counteroffensive uh, there is there is no infrastructure left when Russians leave and a lot of people need help and evacuation there yeah you know at the beginning of the invasion you know February of last year there was just enormous interest in and support of the Ukrainian cause. Do you think things have changed or do you still feel that support? We definitely see uh, a donor fatigue in terms of uh, the uh, fundraising that we track. Uh, We see that people are, um, in some rare cases, starting to question, um, you know, whether the support is worth it. But overall, the the, the mood is definitely uh, on the side of Ukraine and, uh, you know, people support Ukraine um you know morally and um you know we, we are still getting quite a few donations um every day yeah what are you seeing among your fellow ukrainian tech workers are they are they able to maintain the levels of involvement that they've had uh we we do have a rotation of uh of volunteers in nova ukraine some people um you know come some people go some people you know have time some people don't mm-hmm. but uh we have grown since last march by uh you know, many times, but probably 10, 20 times, hmm. we have um, hundreds of volunteers active in the U.S. And of course, in Ukraine, we are supporting uh, almost 4,000 volunteers. So the organization is going strong. Yeah. Um, Jason writes in to say, you know, at the beginning of the war, my friend Christina, who is a 28-year-old San Francisco tech employee, took paid time off, jumped on a plane to one of Ukraine's neighboring countries. She rented a car, drove to the border where there were humanitarian uh, efforts greeting the mothers and children and older people. And all the posts I saw from her were handing teddy bears to children, handing food to mothers, helping to carry stuff. Christina has been an inspiration to me in her efforts. Um, Stephen, I, I think this comes to you. Got a, had a couple of questions come in in the, in the comments and I'll, I'll try and summarize more or less what they're saying. They're saying that the way that we're talking about this war, that it must go on, that uh, that a peace is not possible right now, that this is actually just sort of warmongering um, on behalf of a sort of like American and uh, Western kind of empire, that there that there is another option that we're not pre- presenting adequately of just going for peace now, right now. So is that true? What are, what are the options here? And can peace be just had right now? Yeah, let me say that I believe that at some point there's going to be a negotiation between Kiev and Moscow. I don't see it happening now. I don't think the conditions are there. First of all, uh, the Kremlin is simply not serious about a negotiation. 
uh, Russian military forces in August and September of last year were losing on the battlefield badly, yet the Kremlin upped its demands of Ukraine for a peace settlement. That's not serious. And, and there's this huge disconnect between the Kremlin's demands of Kyiv, which virtually amount to total capitulation by Ukraine, and what's happening on the battlefield. So I think that has to change first. And then second, um, this has got to be a difficult decision for the Ukrainian leadership, is that when you get into a negotiation, you are unlikely to win on every point. But what has happened over the past 15 months is the scale of the atrocities and the war crimes committed in Ukraine by Russian military forces is such that the Ukrainian population is very determined to drive the Russians out. And that may make it difficult for a negotiation in that the ability of the Ukrainian government to negotiate will be limited by what the Ukrainian population will be able to accept. So there's going to be a negotiation, but the circumstances now are simply not there. Yeah. Igor, for you, as someone who's been involved in, in, this, like, in these humanitarian efforts and is seeing the suffering that the Ukrainian people are, are going through, like, where, where do you stand on this issue? Like, when, when should peace come? Yes, the peace is not possible until um, Ukrainian territories are going to be liberated. This is uh, something that Ukrainian people agree on. And uh, they will um, they will wait and they, they will suffer if needed until that happens. That's very clear. Yeah. You just feel oh, like it's, yeah, go ahead. Can I jump in here? I, I, I think these guys are right. I, I agree with Igor and Stephen, but there's also the, the reality that President Zelensky does have to make a decision. Steve, Steve is right. At some point, he has to say, this can't go on much longer. Uh, I'm unwilling to sacrifice this much more territory, these many more people, the economy already declined by 30%. You know, when you look at Ukraine, my response to the, the flooding last week was, my God, how much more can this country take? Uh, you know, yes, it's true that the if you look at public opinion polling, Ukrainians say President Zelensky fight for every inch. We don't care if it extends the war. Uh, we want to retake our country back to its 1991 borders. But there is a lot of concern that if Ukraine were to try to retake Crimea, that Vladimir Putin would use nuclear weapons. We don't know that. You know, and I can make the argument and Steve will make the argument that Putin is very unlikely to use nuclear weapons for all the reasons that Steve already uh, said. But it's also worth mentioning that Putin has made nuclear threats at least a dozen times, and he's never made good on them. So he has a, a history of upping the ante and then backing away. But I, I'd say on your question on what to expect as the counteroffensive heats up and as Ukraine liberates more cities and villages, we should expect to see more war crimes. And that's why it's so important uh, that, that Igor and all of these organizations continue their relief work. Um, but President Zelensky is going to have to make a political decision. And I believe the Ukrainian people will follow him when he says enough is enough. It, it's time. We've taken as much of our territory back as possible, but it's up to him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is another dynamic at play, which is, the, you know, the U.S. has been a major military backer of Ukraine. We've got an election coming up um, in 2024. Do you think that's going to make uh, a big difference in the conduct of uh, of this war? Stephen, let's start with you. 
Yeah, no, I've um, followed Ukraine for 30 years. And what strikes me is that support for Ukraine in the United States has largely been a nonpartisan issue, is that you've had Democrats and Republicans alike being very supportive of Ukraine and supportive of the idea that the United States should assist and be helpful to Ukraine. But that has changed in the past eight months. Uh, you now have this dynamic. Uh, I think it's largely what I would refer to as the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, which is questioning that support. And, and that's the first time you've really seen questioning in either party of US support for Ukraine. Thus far, it seems to be a minority view, uh, but it's a dynamic we have not seen before. And uh, I do fear that there's a chance it could be, uh, uh, it could expand uh, in the heat of a presidential election campaign in 2024. Uh, so it bears watching. Well, and certainly during a primary season in the Republican Party in which it's kind of unclear how this issue may, may end up playing into that, um, that well, primary. Well, I think the former president's position is very clear. Uh, Governor DeSantis has come up with, I think, you know, an unclear position, but not exactly supportive of Ukraine. So that this could be an issue among Republicans. Uh, this is really kind of a surprise because, of course, you know, traditionally you would have expected the Republican Party to be at the forefront of supporting uh, a country like Ukraine in resisting uh, this kind of Russian aggression. And as I said, it, it's a dynamic we have not seen in the past 30 years. I very much hope it remains a minority view within the Republican Party and that that view can be contained because it is in the national interest of the United States to be helping Ukraine and helping uh, Ukraine stop Russia. Yeah. Alexis, this may be even more tactical uh, and two in the weeds, but the Ukrainians know that they're on that that the U.S. election matters very much. And the next big vote that people are worried about is the big assistance vote that will be in September or this fall. So the, the question is, uh, as the counteroffensive heats up, do the Ukrainians have the votes they need? Or sorry, do, are there enough pro-Ukrainian votes on Capitol Hill to pass it? And at this point, the answer is yes. Like Steve said, it's a bipartisan issue, uh, but there are reasons to be worried about that. In general, though, just to zoom out, uh, the Ukrainians know that the political leadership in the United States could get very wacky uh, starting in January with the presidential election. So they know that the window may be short. And now is the time to push. What about in Europe and Ukraine's European allies? You know, I think the Europeans even surprised themselves by what a united front they showed after Russia invaded Ukraine. Has that held and is it continuing to hold? Uh, yes. In fact, I, I, the unity among Europeans in supporting Ukraine is something that I don't think many of us uh, who were watching this would have predicted 16 months ago. But if anything, it seems to have intensified. I mean, there's been several cases now where the German Chancellor Schultz, and I think Schultz was a little bit back and forth last year on supporting Ukraine, uh, but he's come out in very strong terms uh, at public events, basically saying that Germany has a natural, national interest in supporting Ukraine and seeing Ukraine prevail in this fight against Europe. Now, I think, I'm sorry, this fight against Russia, now, again, as with I think, the American public, to the extent that the Ukrainians are making progress on the battlefield, that's helpful with European audiences and uh, in persuading them that, yes, this is a fight that Ukraine can win and that continued Western support for Ukraine is justified. Yeah. 
That, that's exactly right. I'd also say uh, that the Brits have surprised us as well. They've been ahead of the United States at least four times on different weapon systems. We talked about ATACMS, the long-range missiles before. The United States, the White House has said no, but the Brits sent their equivalent. And they've done this multiple times, and they've been a leader, and they stuck their necks out. Something changed, Alexis, in the last month in Europe, and the Western Europeans in particular have uh, decided that their security is bound up in the future of Ukraine. Hmm. You know, uh, Pamela writes in to say, you know, this war is apocalyptic. It demonstrates the total destruction of an independent nation by a totalitarian dictator who must be stopped. Our freedom, our ability to remain and defend democracies around the world is what's at stake. If Biden had not been elected, Ukraine would already be a Russian colony at this point, and Europe would be next. I've also heard from other listeners saying... This is uh, a, a piece of a war machine. That that's what, uh, and you see this very difficult um, thing. Joe writes in to say, um, "This is a detached analysis by experts that profit from a warmongering administration. No reflection on hundreds of thousands killed or to be killed if they had their way. No mention of peace or Biden's apocalyptic nuclear musings." Hopefully, Joe wrote that in earlier before we talked about peace and maybe missed the front part of the show too when we talked about a lot of the victims in, in Mariupol. Um, we've been discussing the latest developments in the war in Ukraine with Stephen Pfeiffer, an affiliate with the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford and a former ambassador to Ukraine. Thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Also been joined by Melinda Herring, a non-resident senior fellow and former deputy director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council. Thanks for joining us, Melinda. Pleasure. And Igor Markov, a member of the board of directors of Nova Ukraine. You can check out all the humanitarian relief that they're doing. Thank you for joining us, Igor. Thank you, Alex. It's good to be here. Earlier, we were joined by Mstislav Chernov, director of the documentary 20 Days in Mariupol. Take a look. It's going to be screening here in the Bay Area. And it does, in fact, bring home the fact this war is grim. The 9 o'clock hour of forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Juan, Dan Zoll, Juan Carlos Lara, Jennifer Ng, and Lakshmi Sarah. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Francesca Venzi is our digital community producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of forum ahead with guest host Priya Clemens. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.